you would turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Uh, This morning we are back in our study in 1 Corinthians. Uh, Pastor Dennis said it's been a while since he uh, uh, did opening announcements and welcomed everybody. feels like it's been a while since I've spoken, so um, it is good to be with you. I've been excited about uh, getting back into our 1 Corinthians series and just being able to look at God's Word together uh, as we uh, continue. And we are going to be looking for the next several weeks at the Lord's Supper. In fact, uh, the title of this section of 1 Corinthians, verses 17 to 34, I've entitled this, A Closer Look at the Lord's Supper. And uh, before I forget, however, I do want to make mention, because sometimes things slip my mind uh, at the end of the service, everything from announcements to people's names. Um, So, uh, I want to mention at the end of the service, after the Lord's Supper, uh, we are going to have some hosts at both exits of the back of the auditorium um, with a basket And we're going to take a a special love offering collection for Pastor Rude and Patty Rude. Um, So uh, 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 we'd invite you to to partake in that offering. We just want to bless them uh, during this time. Uh, Bless them for their ministry that they've had for 26 years uh, as as a part of of this church family. Um, So uh, if you are able and willing to give, we'd, I'd encourage you to do that at the end of the service. I just want to make that announcement now in case I forget. And we do hope that you can uh, be with us at our picnic uh, at Three Springs. I think uh, we're planning on eating at around 1230. Uh, you can come at any time um, and, and hang out and socialize, but we will, we'll, we'll plan to eat at around 1230, just to give you a time frame. Uh, in case you need to make some stops on your way over there. Well, the phrase, this do in remembrance of me, is a very familiar one if you are a follower of Jesus and you've you've partaken, excuse me, in the Lord's Supper. This do in remembrance of me. Yes, sometimes we have to remind ourselves that familiarity... And a heart-level understanding are oftentimes two entirely different things. You see, looking at my own life, and as we go through this, this uh, look at the Lord's Supper, something wrong? Oh, yeah. I thought I was coming through quite clear. <laughs> I wondered why uh, Mike had a weird look on his face, and I was trying to stay focused. <laughs> yes. All right, let's, part two here. Um, as we look at the Lord's Supper, um, and as I was preparing, I, I couldn't help but just think just of my own life and, and, uh, and uh, partaking of the Lord's Supper for... Um, my time since I've been a follower of Jesus, and, and I'm going to share more of that as we look through the text. But again, familiarity and heart understanding are oftentimes two entirely different things. And uh, the Lord saved me at a very young age. I was raised in a pastor's home, 
which didn't automatically bring salvation, but it did mean that I was raised under the instruction of Scripture my whole life. Um, And at a young age, I came to accept Christ as my Savior. And then as a public declaration of my faith, I was later baptized in my home church. And after I was obedient to that first command that God gives His followers to publicly identify with Him as a follower of Jesus Christ in the context of of the church, it was then that I participated in the second mark of a Christian. The second command that God has given His church, and that is to partake of the Lord's Supper together. Do this in remembrance of me. I think it's important that we not reverse the order of those two ordinances or commands that that Christ has given, that it is first baptism and then the Lord's Supper. Baptism, you're publicly identifying yourself as a follower of Jesus. The Lord's Supper, as we're going to see in our text, is a public declaration as well. However, it's not marking you for the first time as a follower of Jesus. It is a declaration that you are still holding to Jesus as your soul rescuer as you continue in your Christian life. First baptism, and then the Lord's Supper. But even though I've had the privilege of of partaking in the Lord's Supper for uh, 30 plus years, when I look at my own life, I found that the significance of the Supper has only become more special as I've grown in my understanding of God's Word and what this ordinance what this command that Jesus has given us to observe, what it means in my life as a Christian. I've also noticed that I've grown in my understanding of the importance of the Lord's Supper as I have learned more of the importance of the Lord's Supper in the context of the the life of the local church and my part in that life of the local church. The Lord's Supper is one of those things I think that we can be very familiar with, but again, the heart level understanding can be lacking. So I want to start this morning, before we even get into our text, by approaching some of the wrong ideas or the wrong perspectives we can have regarding the Lord's Supper. There could be more. This list is not exhaustive. But I want to uh, bring to your attention five wrong ideas or wrong perspectives that we can have regarding the Lord's Supper. The first one is some people have the wrong perspective that the Lord's Supper is a means to salvation. Now we know that uh, individuals that would hold to this viewpoint would be um, uh, of the, the Roman Catholic persuasion. In fact, they would call the Lord's Supper Mass. There's an understanding that by partaking 
of the Lord's Supper, that it somehow cleanses sin, it it, it imparts more righteousness. That yes, one must exercise faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and His death and resurrection, but that almost begins the process of righteousness. And as you part, continue to partake in different elements that the church deems important, that that righteousness grows. So for some individuals, the Lord's Supper is actually a means to attaining the fullness of righteousness. And I think that we would all agree that that is definitely a wrong idea, a wrong perspective regarding the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper is for Christians who completely have Jesus' righteousness apart from anything that we have done. But I think these other four wrong perspectives can hit us closer to home and sometimes more so at different times of our life than others. A second wrong perspective that we can have is that the Lord's Supper is something that is haphazard. Now, we would probably all say, uh, we would all not want to admit to these things, but I think if we looked in our hearts, that we can oftentimes approach either the topic of the Lord's Supper or approach the Lord's Supper itself at church with a haphazard understanding that it's a haphazard event. When we have this viewpoint, not a lot of thought goes into the Lord's Supper. It's kind of just something that we do as Christians. It's kind of just, yeah, it's something in the life of the church that we do. This perspective, it it can fail to ask crucial questions. Really thinking through, what is the Lord's Supper all about? It can fail to ask crucial questions like, what about baptism? Like like I had mentioned before, uh, if if we have not been obedient to Christ's first command to publicly identify with Him in baptism, should we partake of the Lord's Supper, the second ordinance He's given us? Sometimes we fail to think through these issues not from a, 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 an, a, a, your own mindset, but through Scripture. Sometimes we fail to ask questions like, what about, how does the Lord's Supper, what does it speak concerning my connection to the local church? We're going to look at that in our text what about the condition of one's heart? What, what should my con- the condition of my heart be as I approach the Lord's Supper? Do I haphazardly partake that, you know, I come, I, I, I take the, the bread, I take the juice, but there's not a lot of heart preparation beforehand? There's not a lot, about, a lot, not a lot of thought that goes into what I just observed afterward? I think we're all guilty at one time or another of taking the Lord's Supper in a haphazard way. But a third wrong perspective is that I think that 
we can often approach the Lord's Supper as a type of a performance. Now, I'm not talking about an outward performance, although it can be that. We can, we can know that there are, there are clear areas of rebellion in my heart against God, and we can just act as if nothing's wrong. That's one side of the equation with performance, but I also want to draw our attention this morning that sometimes we can approach the Lord's Supper in a wrong way as sort of an internal performance. In other words, sometimes we can approach the Lord's Supper thinking that I only can participate if I have my act together. In other words, the time of self-examination is oftentimes uh, an introspective time where I'm saying, do I have my act together enough? And unfortunately, if you're not already aware, we will never have our act together enough. And we fail to keep in mind the very significance of the Lord's Supper as we will be reading these, the Corinthian church failed to keep in mind the importance that this is all about Jesus. It is His body that's represented. It is His blood that is represented. And it is our clinging to that once-for-all sacrifice and our response that without Jesus there is nothing that we can do in and of ourselves, and we want to say, Jesus, take my life. Forgive me of of my everyday sins. But if we're not careful, we can cross a line into internal performance that somehow we have our act all together and therefore we can partake. A fourth wrong view, and it kind of goes uh, with the happen taking it as a haphazard event, is that sometimes we can approach the Lord's Supper as something that is, practically speaking, irrelevant. That, you know, I know that Jesus has said to His followers, He said to the church, that we are to do this in remembrance of Him until He comes again. But you know what? If we took out the Lord's Supper in the local church, would it really make that much of a big of a difference? You see, sometimes when we treat the Lord's Supper as something that is irrelevant, we may have the, the thought in our mind, sure, it looks back to what Jesus did for me, but what about the so what of today and tomorrow? Is the Lord's Supper simply something that looks backwards? Is it simply something that looks at a past event? If that's the case, why don't we just sit back and think about Jesus' death and resurrection? You see, the Lord's Supper is a, yes, it looks backwards, but it is a present reality of what God not only has done, but is doing in the life of a believer and promises to do, to complete one day when he returns. A fifth and final wrong idea or wrong perspective, just by way of introduction that I want to share with you, 
is that we oftentimes approach the Lord's Supper as something that is private. The Lord's Supper we can sometimes approach as this is between me and God alone. Now, don't get me wrong, this is a a time of communion, of fellowship, spiritual communion, spiritual fellowship with the Lord Jesus. The Roman Catholics, they believe that the body, that the, 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 the bread, the juice, literally is transformed into the physical body and blood of Jesus. Scripture nowhere teaches that. But there is a spiritual presence of the Lord as we partake of the bread and the juice that represents who Jesus is. So there is that communal aspect, but communion cannot be relegated to a a God and I alone time. You see, we can often have the idea that other people don't have a part to play in this. The focus here is God and I. But if that is so, why is the Lord's Supper given to the church to observe? It doesn't say, as you are at home with your family, do this in remembrance of me. This is something that the Lord has given to the church to observe. And as we're going to see in our text, in a community, family setting. So we're going to address, as we go through this text, many of these wrong ideas and wrong perspectives, but I just wanted to bring them to the forefront for you right now to get you thinking. So the many perspectives that one may take regarding the Lord's Supper, it only highlights the necessity that we understand what Scripture says regarding it. And uh, time's not going to permit us to look at every passage that deals with the Lord's Supper um, in this series and in this portion of Scripture, but we are going to look at the Corinthians' wrong perspective of the Lord's Supper. And listen, this is what we are going to really... C, as we look at verses 17 to 34 over the next couple weeks, their wrong perspectives resulted in wrong practice. The Corinthians' wrong perspectives in the Christian life as a whole, it resulted in wrong perspectives that, yes, even showed up during their observance of the Lord's Supper. This morning, we're going to take a closer look at the Lord's Supper. And what we're going to do, this this passage, it nicely divides itself into four main sections. And as we take this closer look at the Lord's Supper, I just want to give you a roadmap to where we're headed. We're going to see number one in verses 17 to 22, a closer look at the Lord's Supper, that number one, the Lord's Supper is an expression of, of unity. Unity within the body of Christ. And specifically, unity within the local body of Christ, as the local church is, is an expression of the universal church. The Lord's Supper is an expression of unity. Uh, number two, we're going to look at the Lord's Supper in verses 23 to 26. It is indeed a picture of the gospel. 
Jesus' perfect life, his sacrifice, his resurrection. Number three, in verses 27 to 32, we are going to see that the Lord's Supper, it is a time of self-examination. We're going to look at what exactly does that mean, self-examination. Remember I said we can go one of two ways and go too far. And then lastly, from verses 33 to 34, we are going to look at closing application. So as we begin our our look here at, at this passage, once again we are reminded as believers that we must cling to what really matters. And my goodness, what an important thing to cling to what truly matters. The second of two commands that Christ has given His church. So let's pray this morning and ask the Lord to open the minds of our understanding, open our hearts to receive what He has. Father, as we look at Scripture today, Lord, the Word of God is living, is powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword. Lord, it divides that which is indivisible. Father, would you speak to us through your word this morning? Lord, would you bring heart understanding? Lord, whether it's issues we are looking at this morning regarding the Lord's Supper, or there are other issues that your Holy Spirit will be at work in our hearts. Lord, would you convict us? But with that conviction, would you assure us? Lord, would you assure us of your grace, of your love, of the reality that you hold us in your hands. Lord, even right now as we, Lord, as I proclaim your word, and as those here are listening to your word, Lord, what an assurance it is that we have Jesus in heaven who is interceding, who is praying for us on our behalf. And Lord, as we later at the end of our service, as we partake of the Lord's Supper, Lord, would you encourage our hearts in the reality of Christ's sacrifice and resurrection that even today, Lord, the Spirit is working in our hearts, is completing the good work that He started in us. And Lord, we pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. Number one, as we take a closer look at the Lord's Supper, the Lord's Supper, it serves as an expression of unity. Verses 17 to 22 show us this. I want to quickly uh, read, and you follow along. I'm going to read verses 17 to 19. Paul writes, but in the following instructions, I do not commend you. So already, we're off to a bad start, right? Okay. Because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. And I believe it in part. For there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. I just want to stop there. 
And I want to give you a few introductory thoughts here as we are going to, like with head coverings, Paul, uh, Paul is, exp- uh, is expressing the broad context, and then he gets more and more specific. The Lord's Supper is an expression of unity, and, and what we have to realize is the Lord's Supper, it takes place, as we know, in the context of the local church. As we also know, going through this series, there is a whole pile of issues that Paul addresses to this church. So we don't partake of the Lord's Supper at the end of this morning in a vacuum, as if nothing else affects coming to the Lord's Supper. It was the same way in the Corinthian church. There's already a pile of issues, and what they're doing is they are bringing these issues into their observance of the Lord's Supper. It's kind of like with, if you're married with you and your spouse, you know, issues are not kept in a little closet. Sometimes we try to keep them in a closet, and what happens? It's never a good thing. Everything affects everything else. And that's what's happening here. What we see in verses 17 through 19 is the fact that disunity will reveal itself. And there is great disunity that is going on in the local church. In verse 17, we read that Paul cannot commend their behavior. Paul says in verse 17, in the following instructions, I do not commend you. Now, this is automatically going to get the attention of the Corinthian church when this letter is read out loud to them. uh, Contrast that with verse 2 when Paul says, I do commend you because you remember me and everything and maintain the traditions even as I delivered them to you. So this is quite a contrast here. Paul, he addresses an issue with head coverings that is causing some problems in the church, but he says, overall church, I commend you in how you handle, are handling this. But we need to give further instruction. Here he says, church as a whole, this is not good. There are problems. What is happening is the church is gathering actually was tearing down rather than building up. Notice the irony here. In the following instructions, I do not commend you. Why? Because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. That, that, that phrase, coming together, that, doesn't that characterize the local church at its core? The local church, it is a gathered together assembly. And Paul is literally saying, church, it is so bad that when you act as the church and literally come together, it is not for the edification of each other. It is actually doing more harm than good. Wow, isn't that amazing that that could happen? It was for the worse of the members' unity, as we will see. It was tearing down. It was causing even greater division. And it was worse, as we're going to see in verse 18, for the very testimony of this church. They're literally being characterized by this disunity. 
Paul can't commend their behavior. And in verse 18, we see that the, the reports of, of other people, it got so bad that, that even that exposed disunity. Look at verse 18. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. Paul mentions there is a report of disunity in the church. Remember, Paul is not in Corinth when he's writing this letter. Report is actually coming back to him of this disunity. You remember um, in chapter 1 and verse 11, this is not the first time a bad report came back. In chapter 1 and verse 11, Paul says, It has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. This was just a deeper expression of what was already existent in the local church. That man, this is affecting um, their church life and and serving uh, and following uh, leadership. They're all segmented and it's even overflowing to the Lord's Supper. While this church was to be known as followers of Christ, in reality, this church was being known as followers of individual selves. Man, isn't it easy for that to happen to us? Our own preferences, our own thoughts, our own feelings, and we lose sight of what the, the, the Lord's Supper even means, of what coming together is even significant of. You see, disunity was a key problem theologically and functionally in this church. The last time we read of this word divisions that, that, that Paul mentions in verse 18, it is again going back to chapter 1. In verse 10, he's talking about, he says, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus, that all of you agree that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. This is the seed of disunity has been sown and is bearing forth fruit. In chapter 3, verses 1 to 4, Paul says, But I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but people of the flesh, as infants of Christ. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. And even now you are not ready, for you are still of the flesh. For where, while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? There were problems. The very word divisions in chapter 11, verse 18, is the word in which we get schisms from. There were schisms in the church. In fact, Paul says here in verse 18 at the end, he says, And I believe it in part, for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. So Paul says, listen, I'm inclined to believe what I'm hearing because of everything else that I know. In fact, he's being polite when he says, I in part believe it. Again, we see that there is an irony here that again in verse 17, 
It's mentioned coming together. It's not for the better, but for the worse. And then in verse 18, he, he mentions when you come together. No, this is highlighting that the church should be coming together as expression, an expression of unity that Jesus has brought together what could not be brought together, but instead they are using it, they're coming together to serve their own purposes. And in verse 19, Paul says there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. You may say, what in the world does Paul mean when he says that? Well, first of all, he's being a bit sarcastic here. Because as we know from chapter 1, I follow Paul, I follow Apollos, I follow Cephas, I follow Christ. What, what these people were doing is they were trying to gain significance. They were gaining standing, trying to gain standing by who they followed. And that was culturally what the people of Corinth did culture-wise, and they were imitating culture. And Paul here says there have to be factions among you in order that those who are genuine may be recognized. This is what all of these believers were seeking to gain recognition. But they were doing it in all the wrong ways. You see, while Paul is being sarcastic with them, he is also showcasing theological truth. That even in the midst of congregational sin God uses even that to expose what is false and to refine what is true what is genuine in fact that word genuine refers to those who are tested those who are approved 2 Corinthians 10:18 says for it is the one, it is not the one who commends himself who is approved but the one whom the Lord commends. So you have a group of believers that were fighting for their own rights. They were trying to gain, gain standing in society and in the church. They're trying to commend themselves. And Paul says, in reality, what's going on here? Paul, uh, God is actually using it to commend the genuine, not those who are fighting so hard to be recognized themselves. As one person said, God is working out His purposes and designs in the divisions cropping up in the local church. Did you know that's true today? Did you know that there are individuals in churches and, 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 and there are individuals in churches and it is so easier for churches to make compromises and to say, yes, Scripture says this, but it makes more sense to do this, the path of least resistance. And God uses those who say, this is not right biblically. This isn't a preference. This isn't an opinion. No, this is, this is black and white Scripture. And God uses those individuals to shed light into the local church. And many times... When churches still do not follow, God uses the genuine to have to leave. 
When we see sin in the church, it shouldn't be a cause for us to say, well, that's their business. When we see sin in the church, it shouldn't stand as some type of a standard to say, well, it must be okay. No, our consciences must be held captive to the Word of God. From the very top, flowing to every part of the body, as we'll see in 1 Corinthians 12. So I want to, first of all, bring to your attention that disunity will reveal itself in the life of a church. And when that happens, the Lord's Supper is taken in vain because the very life of the church, the health of the church, is disregarding what the very Lord's Supper represents. I want to look at one final aspect of this, however, in verses 20 to 22. The Lord's Supper, it is a picture, it represents, it is an expression of unity. And when we are in disunity, this disunity, when we come together for the Lord's Supper, actually makes a mockery of Christ's sacrifice. Makes a mockery of Christ's sacrifice. Look at verse 20. Again, he uses, this is the third time already, the third time he uses this phrase, come together. Again, highlighting why it's important. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. Whoa. You, uh, if you were in the church, you could say, what do you mean? Isn't that a kind of a scathing rebuke? It's not the Lord's Supper. that I don't know what you're doing, but it's not the Lord's Supper, Paul's saying. Verse 21, For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. Now again, there's some cultural things going on here, um, but we don't need to know the culture to know the overall truth of what Paul is getting at. I'll share with you some of that. Uh, but, but you don't need to know that to see the overall picture of what Paul is saying. Because what we see here, why does disunity make a mockery of Christ's sacrifice, especially in the context of communion? Because what we see is that this church's actions were actually denying what they were coming to observe. I mean, imagine, we, we, ha, uh, uh, we had kind of a, 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 a rough week and a half. Um, we, we have, uh, we, a cat adopted us um, uh, last fall, almost a year ago. And uh, before we could get that, uh, that cat that adopted us, we kept it outside. Uh, and Rachel's allergic, and I don't feel like having everything get clawed up. Uh, but... Um, she had some kittens. There were three that we were raising. In fact, I was begging some of you, please take these kittens. We need to get rid of these kittens. Well, unfortunately, they all got sick. And uh, one by one, they, they started to die. And then uh, just, what day was it? Wednesday night, uh, the mother, or, or earlier this week, the mother got sick. We thought she was in the clear 
that maybe it was just a kitten thing. She got sick, and she was sick for like two days and then died. Um, so, so emotional week, uh, but imagine how silly it would be. And by the way, this came off the top of my head, so you know, we'll see if this is good or not. But imagine how silly it would be to have those cats die and then go out and act as if they were living and be acting all the same way and be putting out the cat food and be putting out the water like we had to do every day and saying, you know, this is for the cats. Wouldn't that be foolish? Wouldn't that be an empty action? You see, if we were to do that, our actions would be, would be denying the very reality that unfortunately those cats died. I mean, that's a very silly illustration, but how much of a greater weight is there through our actions to be denying what Christ has purchased? What has He purchased? The unity of of his body. He has brought together that which otherwise would never be brought together. Jew, Gentile, Greek, male, female, all of that, Galatians 3.28. You see, we can actually deny what is true by our actions. And that is what was happening here. And Paul says, it's not the Lord's Supper you're partaking of. You see, God is not pleased with empty practice. Wouldn't the Christian life seemingly be easier if God was pleased with empty practice? I mean, that's where legalism comes in, that we think that if we do certain things, then then we can easily say we're doing well in our Christian life. Because that's easier for us to be able to check things off a list and say, yes, I did all of this, and we leave the heart out of it. I think of 1 Samuel 15, 22. Remember when uh, Samuel told Saul, when you go out um, for for the victory against King Agag and his nation, to you destroy everything. It's all to be devoted to the Lord. And Saul winds up keeping the animals, the best of the animals. And he says, oh, it's for sacrifice, Samuel. Don't worry about that. What does Samuel say? It should be on the screen. Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to listen than the fat of rams. This was to be a a characteristic statement that that the Scriptures include here at at the beginning part of the nation of Israel because we see over and over again the prophets are saying, the Lord, your sacrifices, your offerings are an abomination to Him. Because in your heart, in your life, you are denying Him. And in your sacrifices, they mean nothing.
You see, their actions were denying what they were coming to observe. In verse 21, when it says, For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. We see verse 21, why are their actions denying what they are coming to observe? Because their focus is on self, not Christ. I want to have the best of the meal. I am seeking to satisfy the desires of the flesh with gluttony and with drunkenness. I you see, in the church, we, we, we've already recalled that, that we're dealing with different social statuses in the church. And remember, God has brought all types of different people of economic means, of different jobs, of different personalities, of different talents. He's brought us all together under, uh, 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 under one roof, so to speak, as one body through Jesus, not because of some earthly means of connectedness like a club. How much more so that was in the first century when all of society was segmented by social status, prestige in society. And what was happening was those of higher status were getting filled and getting drunk while those of a lower status within the church were going hungry. Now sometimes theologians, they go, uh, they're not exactly sure, okay, what was happening here. Uh, in verse 21, um, it says, For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. So what could be happening was that um, those of a, kind of the higher class in those, all those divisions within the church Individuals were not waiting for the entire body to gather. They were meeting and they just started sharing their meal and, 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 and eating and getting drunk. And then by the time that the rest of the church body came in, there was very little left. The Lord's Supper uh, in this context uh, was not simply taking the cup and the bread like we uh, do now. It involved an entire meal. That's one thing that may, that may have happened. Another uh, aspect of what has happened, uh, the, what could have happened, is that it's interesting, but uh, as, as one person mentions, the architecture of Greco-Roman homes in Corinth, it suggests, they say, that the social elite would eat in a special dining room. It was called the triclinium while the lower class would eat in a larger courtyard outside. It was called the atrium. In fact, they report that uh, there were six the, uh, archaeological finds, and those dining rooms, the triclinium, would accommodate around nine individuals. This is in, 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 in uh, uh, Corinthian homes, in Greco-Roman homes. Uh, the dining room would accom accommodate around nine individuals, while the outer court, the atrium, would hold at most 50 people, 30 to 40 average. And what could have happened in this case is not that the, the, the higher social class, the divisions in the church, that, that the higher social class was eating before people could get there, but it could have been that the higher social class was actually gathering together in the dining room, leaving those of the lower class in the atrium, and before the food would get to them, the best would be taken. 
leaving the others with little. Regardless of what was going on, because Scripture gives us everything we need to know, regardless of what exactly was going on, we do know the problem. What they were doing and how they were doing it were at great odds. Pastor Dennis preached on chapter 10 of 1 Corinthians with meat being offered to idols, with Christians that were going into pagan temples and eating and drinking. If you look at chapter 10 and verse 16 and 17, In fact, I'm going to jump back to verse 14. Paul says, Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak as to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. The cup of blessing, and he's talking about um, the cup that was observed during the Lord's Supper. The cup of blessing that we bless. Is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? And then notice verse 17. Because there is one bread, one bread, we who are many are one body. One bread for one body. The unity of Christ's sacrifice of His body for the church is to be displayed in the everyday unity of that one body. For we all partake of the one bread. Now, of course, we have wafers, various wafers. But you get the idea of the one bread is a picture of the one body of Christ that has brought together His body composed of living, breathing followers of Jesus. Whatever was happening in the first century, we know this. They were spitting in the face of Jesus' sacrifice. Their divisions, their actions deceived revealed their heart. What makes matters worse is not only were their actions denying what they were coming to observe, but as I close, verse 22, their actions were literally making a mockery of the church and the work of Christ. How was it making a mockery of the church? Look at verse 22. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? They were making a mockery of the church. The church that Jesus Himself purchased. You see, the gathered assembly, the local church, is not a place for selfishness or self-seeking behavior. 
Why? Because if we come to the local church with that mindset, no matter if you're a pastor, if you are a deacon, if you are a church member, no matter who you are, if we come with that perspective, we are making what is Christ to be about us. You see, we despise God's church by despising His people. Man, that ups the ante on those people that maybe rub us the wrong way or are hard to get along with. Man, when we start talking behind each other's backs, we're despising Christ because we're despising His people. You see, value is not what we have but it's whose we are. And in verse 22, those of, that, that seemed to be socially higher were despising and humiliating, it says, those who have nothing. Do you remember in chapter 1 when Paul is talking about the wisdom of God that's displayed in the crucified Messiah and it's through the foolishness of the world that the wisdom and power of God is known? He uses the church as an example and says, not many of you were noble or mighty or of high value when you were called by God. But God has done this to show his might and power. None of us have bragging rights. None of us are super Christians. None of us are at a higher plane than the other. None of us can look down our noses at each other. To do so is to despise Christ's church. And it's to make a mockery of Christ's work. You see, the church exists to exalt Christ, not self. And the work of Christ has made believers one. You've heard the phrase, at the foot of the cross, there's always equal footing. one individual said, he says, that they were gathered as the church of God should have been enough to remind them that they constituted a covenant community in which each member found a place through God's gracious redemption and not their own social status, achievements, or qualities. Listen, when we come and we take the bread and the juice, it is all about Jesus. It is not about us. The Lord has placed us in his body. And as we live here in Tioga County, and the Lord has led us to this church, we partake and we say, Lord, you've also led me to this particular local body. It is all your work. It's not about me. The end of verse 22, he says this. What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. You see, they were to be shamed in their actions, not commended. Repentance was needed. And as we come this morning, we are going to observe the Lord's Supper. Maybe repentance is needed in our hearts. Maybe we viewed the Lord's Supper kind of as just this haphazard event. Maybe it's not all that important. 
Maybe we view it as all about us. Maybe you're even harboring division and bitterness in your heart. It could even be with someone in this room, and they don't even know it. Or maybe they do. The reason why we forgive, the reason why we seek unity, the reason why we esteem others better than ourselves, it's not because of some moralism that we muster up within ourselves. It is because we realize the great unity that God has brought between us and Himself through Jesus. How could we take hold of a minor thing when God Himself has done so much for His people? Thank you.